Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is true news. The truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. I'm Rick Wiles. Humanoid robots will be introduced to BMW's auto manufacturing plant in Spartanburg, South Carolina, sometime next year. The robots will work alongside humans on the factory floor. Robotics startup firm Figure said it signed a partnership deal with BMW to deploy small quantities of the human-looking machines in the auto plant in South Carolina. The robots will be integrated into the manufacturing process over the next 12 to 24 months. Here's a short video featuring Brett Adcock, the CEO of Figure. We see a future where there might be 10 billion humanoids on the planet. Our mission really here is to expand human capabilities. If we have humanoids in the market able to do any physical labor, think about what that does for the world. Labor is a choice. Feel free up to do more things you love every day. And we think that's really an exciting, inspiring future. Well, Doc, it's here. It's finally here. We've, we've, we've arrived at the place where... Humanoid robots are going to be working in offices and, and factories. We've had robots yes. for quite some time. Automation. Yes. They're, they're robots. But they, they weren't uh, humanoid robots. They just look like big machines right. that are lifting parts and putting things together. We're now, we, we've arrived at the place where there will be machines that look and act and walk like humans. Working alongside humans. Notice that Mr. Adcock did not address that as a humanoid robot, but humanoid. Granting some semblance of humanity to a machine. Think about that. He said there'd be up to 10 billion of these humanoids in the world within the next few years. Well, the human population is 7 billion. Right. So he's telling us that we're going to be outnumbered by machines? That's the in, number in, he gave. In a few years? Doc, there won't be any need for billions of people to work. Well, there won't be any need for billions of people, Rick. Precisely. So that's where I'm going with this. The plan is to introduce robots, artificial intelligence, and then... Uh, there'll be universal UBI, uh, you know, basic income, and then there will be a phasing out of the human population. Right. That's where we're headed. If the elite get what they want, that's all. That's that's entirely dependent on the elite getting what they want. Their dystopian future. 
Now, to them, it's a utopian future. To the rest of humanity, it's a dystopian future. Right, because they're the ones being eliminated. So, um, this other video uh, is simply uh, one of the figure robots making coffee using a Keurig machine. Would you, uh, would you like your coffee, coffee made by robot, Doc? It must be a union robot because he doesn't move very fast. And so I know. Move pretty <laughs> slow. I would have had my coffee done by now. But anyway, it just shows you the adaptability of the humanoid robots that are being rolled out and the dexterity and the ability for them to do a number of complicated tasks. So it's if we're looking at 10 billion of these humanoid robots in the world, they'll be ubiquitous in society. You'll have them on in the streets, in the cafes, in the restaurants. And you will be replaced at some point by a humanoid robot. They won't need you, Rick. They won't need any of us. And that's the goal. Well, okay, so think about it, what you just said, Doc. I was trying to comprehend it. If if Mr. Adcock's prediction is correct, that in the coming years there will be 10 billion humanoid robots, and there are presently only 7 billion humans, so, if it was just one, one for one, seven billion robots, seven billion humans, mm-hmm. j- just think if you stepped outside of our office right now, right. onto the streets, how many people are out there right now? There will, that, there will be that many robots on the sidewalks, in the streets, in the offices, because they, they would be on par, one for one. Right. And he's saying in, a f- in the coming years, and what we don't know what that means, in the coming years, but they're going into the South Carolina plant in the next 12 to 24 months. Working on the factory floor. And it's being presented as working alongside the human workers. But you've got to be really naive to think that BMW plans to keep human workers. They're going to be eliminated. I don't know what the time span will be for the elimination of all the human workers, but you can be assured BMW has that schedule. Well, this would be greater than the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. I mean, by 10 or 100-fold. I mean, think of the rapid changes that took place with the Industrial Revolution in in Britain and America. There were so many cultural changes that took place as a result of that. Things are going to change very, very rapidly when the robot revolution takes place, which now we're estimating China and Japan both are rolling out millions of these robots here over the next couple of years, mainly to serve an aging population. Think about that. There's going to be about millions of them serving as caretakers in Japan alone. But the robots are going to be connected to artificial intelligence. Yes. And... When artificial intelligence concludes that human presence on the planet is detrimental to planet Earth because of climate change, the phony um, crisis that the elite have, have given us. When artificial intelligence concludes that human or humans are, are detrimental to the health of the planet, Artificial intelligence can make the decision to eliminate humans. Doc, if there are more robots than humans, 
robots could go on a murder spree. How long would it take them to kill every human? Well, it, when's the last minutes. time you fought off a, a humanoid steel machine trying to choke you to death? It's been a while. It's been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> well, what about one that's armed? Look, this is a nightmare world that they're creating. If Jesus Christ, if if this, if God the Father does not shorten the days of mankind, no flesh will survive. That's what Jesus said. And we're getting another glimpse of this world. It is Satan replacing man's creation. Satan saying, I can make machines that look like humans. I can run the world with artificial intelligence. I don't need human brains. I can have an artificial brain. Satan I, Satan's saying, I can be the god of this, of this world. The robots will worship me. I'll make them like stones. They will fall down and worship me. <laughs> yes. Wow. It's really a bizarre future that we're looking at right now. And I don't think anybody that I know of in, in Bible prophecy has thought through what the end times really will look like. Because if you're... If you're version of the end times is a secret rapture and you're taken out and 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 everything just falls apart while the human race is gone that is so naive doc jesus said that if his father does not cut short the days of mankind no flesh would survive now you could see how that could happen if we're outnumbered by machines and the machines decide Hey, we don't need any of these humans anymore. The, the robots don't scare me as much as the artificial intelligence does. AI connected to robots is, now that's terrifying. Because the robots are machines. Right. No it's a than, metal machine. No it's, different than a hammer. It's a tool. That's mm. all it is that has a computer. But the computer is programmed by a what could eventually be a a a, a supercomputer that has acquired the ability to think, to reason. Now that's frightening, and it is then programming all you know a ten billion machines. It's just hard to comprehend, isn't it? Okay, let's move on. To something, uh, well, while we're talking about the elite, you know, I, we were talking yesterday, I think it was yesterday, uh, about how the, the elite has a, compl- the, the globalists, the elite, the ruling class, they have a different mindset. They have different goals. Their goals for, for our country, whatever country you're living in, is completely different than what the people desire. Right. They have their own agenda. Robotics is one of their agendas. Replacing human workers is one of their agendas of the elite. Why? Because they don't want to pay payroll. Right. It's just that simple. And ro- uh, robots can work 24 hours a day. They don't take breaks. They don't take vacations. They don't take family leave. They don't do any of those things. Doc, if you get rid of, let's say, 90% of the human population, and there's only this very small 
privileged class of people left on the entire planet. What economy do you need? What economy do you need? There is no economy at that point. There's no reason to have an economy. Well, that's true. They own it all. They're going to declare themselves the winner. Hey, we won. We got the planet. It's ours. You don't need a global economy. Nobody's making anything at that point. All their businesses is <laughs> people are either manufacturing a product or a service to bring in wealth. And they have to pay humans to produce these products or services. But if you reach the point that you don't need humans and you don't even have humans, there's no need for an economy. There's no trade going on at this point. You just own everything. You own everything. A small group of people, you have global communism, but the communism is super wealthy communism. They own the entire planet and everything on it and in it. And they have robots serving them. Robots that don't disobey, don't Precisely. rise up in rebellion, don't do any of those things that humans do. Because they're controlling the AI that's programming the robots. I really believe this is the direction they're going. But I want to get back to what the, the elite think, how different they are than you and me. Uh, several days ago, I, I saw a survey. It was, it was uh, produced by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And there it is right there. Them versus, well, it should be them versus us, but it's them versus the U.S., meaning the American people. So it's the two Americas and how the nation's elite is out of touch with average Americans. And we're not going to go through the entire report. I just want to go over the executive summary. And it, it, it says uh, below, we, we have highlighted some of the profound attitudinal differences between elites and average Americans. There you go. You can see it right there. In a time when most Americans have suffered a loss of real take-home pay, 74% of elites say they are financially better off today than in the past, versus 20% of all Americans. Nearly 6 in 10 say there is too much individual freedom <laughs> in America. Too much freedom. The elites say that. 60% of the elite say there's too much freedom in America. More than two-thirds, 67% of the elite, favor rationing of vital energy and food sources to combat climate change. In stark contrast to the rest of America, 70% of the American elites trust the government to do the right thing. Two-thirds, 67%, say teachers and other educational professionals should decide what children are taught rather than letting parents decide. Somewhere between half and two-thirds favor banning things like SUVs, gas stoves, air conditioning, and non-essential air travel to protect the environment. About six of the ten elites have a favorable opinion of so-called 
talking professions, lawyers, lobbyists, politicians, journalists. President Joe Biden enjoys an 84% job approval rating from this group. Now, who is this group? This this committee um, that uh, produced this study, they polled uh, the, the, top 1%. The, the top 1% of the American population. And these results are based on the answers that those people gave in this poll. The only people that were polled were the top 1%. Doc, the, the differences are so stark and so radical. Now we know why the, you and I, why we feel so frustrated. Like the American people don't want these things happen. There are things that we all, I would say all, that most of the middle class say we don't want it or we want it, but nothing happens. Right. Now we know why. Because the elite are saying your opinion doesn't matter. It's only our opinion that matters. And we're going to do what we want to do. And, and we're, not going to, we're not even going to take into account your position. In fact, we think you're deplorable. There is a snottiness, a snobbishness, a, an elitism that has disdain for the middle class. And anybody working uh, you know, a, a job to take care of his or her family, they have disdain for you. They really do. They have disdain. They, they are elitist, and they think you have too much freedom. They don't think you have a right to own an air conditioner or gas stove. Or fly on an airplane. Or fly on an airplane. But they have the right to own an airplane. Yes. Yeah, you got it. See the difference? You can't fly on a jet to take a vacation, but I own a jet and can take a vacation. That's the difference in these people. This is what we're up against. And it's worldwide. It's throughout the Western world. In Europe, in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Great Britain. It's the ruling class. It's the CFR, Bilderberg, Trilateral Commission, World Economic Forum gang. These are the people that, that graduated from the Ivy League colleges and universities who have an income far above the average American, and their their attitudes about everything are radically different than the middle class. And this is what we're fighting. And they're the ones that would love the robot revolution. They would love it because they know they know the end game. Doc, they're. Their religion is the climate change religion. It's a religion to them. Privately, they know. They believe. There are too many humans on the planet. The planet needs to be depopulated. The, they, they need to get rid of low education, low income, non-performing humans and save the planet. And, of course, they don't fit any of those categories. The robots need them because they created the robots and programmed the robots. The robots need them. But the robots don't need all these other people. The world would be a better place if these um, low-class 
people would just disappear. I really believe they have a long-term plan. Now, I'm not saying every single person is polled in this, but I'm talking among the, the super elite, the Bill Gates types, the, the Michael Bloombergs. I really believe they have a plan to depopulate the planet. And if it's not a written plan, it sure is discussed in their cocktail parties. I don't think they, they're bashful about it in private settings, saying, of course, we've got to depopulate the planet. It's the only humane. When it, the humane thing to do would be get rid of humanity. humanity. Yes. That's how warped their thinking is. Well, while we're talking about things that are warped, let's uh, switch over to Hunter Biden and his sugar bro. So uh, his sugar bro, Kevin Morris, the bong-smoking attorney with the greasy hair, um, has, has been sidestepping questions about his money and the money that he's given his, uh, his friend, his uh, dope-smoking brother there, Hunter Biden. And he really doesn't want to explain the, the flow of money from China. Well, I could understand why. So the New York Post says Kevin Morris, age 60, claimed last week in a deposition he couldn't recall details about the purchase of his son, of, of the first son's 10% stake in a Chinese-backed investment fund. Doc, if you bought 10% of a Chinese investment fund, I would probably. Would you something. remember that transaction? Sure, and I would probably remember some of the details about it too. He doesn't remember the details. He barely remembers why he bought it. He doesn't remember how he got rid of it or why he got rid of it. He's just certain that because it was a good business investment, he went ahead and did it. He just doesn't recall anything else. This is um, New York Post says in his testimony, Morris gave vague confirmation of the fact that he visited the White House three occasions, including a 4th of July picnic last year for the wedding of Hunter's daughter, Naomi, and that he provided Hunter Biden roughly $5 million in loans and assumed control of a Hunter Biden-owned entity that held a 10% stake in Chinese-owned BHR Partners. But Morris claimed he could not recall many specifics or that he couldn't divulge them to due to attorney client privilege. He said, quote, I've been his counsel. That's Hunter's. I've been his counsel since the first day we met. I've also become his friend. He went on to describe how he and Hunter initially met briefly as he exited a November 2019 fundraiser, which was for his father, Joe Biden. So he's been Hunter's lawyer since that fundraiser? Yes. Since that day, he became he became Hunter's friend, his brother, his lawyer and his financier all in one day by attending a Joe Biden fundraiser. Pretty productive fundraiser. I don't know what Joe got out of it, but I know what Hunter got out of it. Hunter got his taxes paid. Hunter got alimony and child support paid. So what does. Kevin Morris get out of all this? Well, he doesn't want to talk about it, Doc. Um, it says host Lynette Phillips reached out later to see if 
if he would be willing to meet with Hunter, which happened in December 2019. Morris said that he and Hunter spoke for about five hours at Hunter Biden's Los Angeles home, and it was one of the most important meetings in my life. He said, it was my belief that Hunter was being tremendously mistreated. Hmm. I'm not sure of the exact amount that he loaned Hunter Biden. But, Doc, it was over $5 million. But he's not sure of the exact amount. If I loan somebody $500, I'm going to know the exact <laughs> amount. Okay? Me too. Because yes. I don't remember. Yes. Though, under questioning, he said it was basically correct to say that he loaned Hunter about $4.9 million, as alleged by IRS case agent Joseph Ziegler, who worked for five years on a tax fraud case against Hunter Biden before he was removed from the investigation. That's what, that's what money gets you right there. Morris said it was his aid to the Hunter Biden uh, amounts to less than 10% of his total assets. Okay, so that means he's worth 50 to $60 million. Yes. He also said he made payments to Hunter's ex-wife, Kathleen, and to London Robert, the former adult entertainer who uh, had a baby with Hunter. And although the loans will become due... Uh, will come due in 2025, Morris acknowledged that it's possible they won't be repaid. Joking that maybe he'll have Hunter wash his car in compensation. Yes, that's what he said. He said he may have Hunter wash his cars. Now, what it means is he's going to do a loan forgiveness. There's going to be some washing, all right. Oh, yes, there's going to be some money laundering. He's going to write a loan forgiveness document and tell Hunter you don't have to pay the $5 million back. But where does Mr. Morris get his $5 million? He's just get He's just going to get rid of it? I mean, you, you, you're just going to say goodbye, kiss $5 million goodbye, make no effort. Knowing that Hunter Biden is the son of the President of the United States, he's not poor. He knows how much money the Bidens have. Right. And he's not going to demand, hey, you go to your daddy and you get that money. I want my $5 million. Doc, this story stinks. It does. Everything about it. Details of Morris's acquisition of the Chinese investment fund, BHR Partners, remains murky. Morris said he believed that he bought the 10% stake by taking over Hunter's uh, LLC for 157000 but that he may have also paid off a $250,000 loan by Jonathan Lee that was made to Hunter in 2019. How does this guy have $50 million if he, if he doesn't know how much he paid for something? Or if he he's doesn't not know good. he paid he's off just, a loan? He's good at making money, but he's just not good at, at accounting. I guess, Doc, I guess that's his answer. He was asked, would you be able to tell us when you purchased the the 10% stake? He said, yeah. And for how much? He replied again, yeah. Some That's his answers, yeah. But, but no details. Yeah. Did you have a written agreement with Hunter Biden regarding the sale of the company? 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't believe so. I don't know. Probably, yeah. Probably it was. I would imagine I had to. Okay, yeah. The answer is yes. Okay. Uh, can we see that agreement? You bought 10% of a corporation owned by Chinese, China. A Chinese company. And you didn't. You're a lawyer. And you didn't get a written agreement. When asked, does that contract allow for Hunter Biden to purchase back the shares at a certain time? He said, that I don't know. I can't tell you. Then for a guy, Hollywood lawyer with $50 million, he sure doesn't know a lot. No, he doesn't, Doc. But he knows he knows it's smart to become friends with Hunter Biden at a cocktail party. <laughs> That's right. All right. Hey, let's move on to World War III. I got a half hour to give you the update on World War III. Got a lot to report. Um, hey, before I do that, let's. I, I'll, I'll take a break for American Reserves. I got to get their announcement in there. They are a sponsor of this program, and so let's uh, let's watch this announcement for American Reserves. Then I'll tell you why you should. Be contacting American Reserves because I'm going to give you about 30 minutes of some pretty powerful World War III news. Don't go away. God's people are smarter than ants. Even ants know it's wise to store food. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler provides her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. I'm Dr. Robert A. Schuler. And I'm on a mission to encourage Christian families to prepare for tough times. That's why I'm endorsing American Reserves. American Reserves can help you build a food storehouse like Joseph in Egypt. American Reserves offers emergency food packages for a month or full year. Buckets of freeze-dried beef and chicken, assorted vegetables and fruits, and powdered eggs are ready for quick delivery. A panic can cause store shelves to be emptied in hours. Be wise. Be ready. Order food at AmericanReserves.com. Okay, AmericanReserves.com. And don't forget, they have shortwave radios and water filters, uh, several water filters made by British Brookfield that, that come with a uh, famous Dalton ceramic filters. So go to the website, AmericanReserves.com, and uh, look at their inventory and and just start selecting the things that you need. Build up your, your inventory. Just get in a habit of just continuing to add to your stockpile of food. We have a we've, – we've got a window, a grace time, Doc. It's a grace time. We know that – to me, the way I look at this – is it's like watching a weather forecast. Right. The weather forecaster is telling me, "Hey, there's there's a, some um, disturbances that could come together into a really bad storm." Right. And there's there's no guarantee it's going to happen, but right now, this looks like a a a really nasty storm up ahead. And we'll just continue to track this storm. That's what I'm doing for you. I'm tracking the storm for you. Well, you know, here in Florida, of course, we deal with hurricanes on a yearly basis. And we've actually had a couple of years where we really haven't had 
that much hurricane activity. Some years we have a lot mm-hmm. of hurricane activity. So right and you don't now, know which year it's going to be. That's right. We don't know which year it's going to be. And so we're in that grace period, if you will, for preparation. And really, in Florida, there's no reason for anybody not to be prepared for a hurricane, not to have resources on hand, not to have an action plan in place. If you live in Florida, you need to be prepared because it's going to happen. It may not be this year. It may not be next year. It will happen. For your house, you have to have either impact-resistant glass yes. or hurricane shutters or plywood. This, that's it. There's no other alternative. There's no other choice. You have to have those three things. You have to buy one of those three things. You have to have impact-resistant glass installed in every window in your house, or you have to have hurricane shutters that can go up quickly— or you have to have plywood stored away, ready to be nailed up to your walls. Right. You can't say, well, I'm just I'm going to wait until the storm comes and I'll get it. Because the first two you can't get at, right. at the last minute. And the third one is sold out. I'm talking about plywood. It's sold out within hours. And, and, and so these storms can come up quickly. I mean, we've seen here in Florida – where there's a Category 1 storm in the Atlantic, you go to bed and you wake up in the morning, and it's a Category 4. Right, and heading straight towards you. So this is, this is what can happen with World War III. It's on. It's already out there churning in the sea. That's right. That's a good, good enough. World War III is churning in the sea. All right. Right now, it's about a Category 1. But it can go to Category 4 or 5 overnight, and it can change direction and start making headway to do a landfall. And you don't know where landfall is going to be with World War III. It may erupt in a place you're not even expecting it. I mean, two weeks ago, Iran and Pakistan were bombing each other. That, where did that come from? I never saw that coming, Doc. Never, ever in 25 years of doing this program, did I ever think I would report that Pakistan and Iran sent missiles to each other. Yes. But it did happen. And so that storm is churning in the sea. So we'll give you, um, we'll do the uh, True News Storm Tracker. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we should we should make that a regular part of the program, Doc. Um, we'll go with uh, the Financial Times. Ukraine war is a battle for ammunition, says NATO chief. So they held a press conference today, and NATO chief, uh, his secretary general, uh, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, signed a contract for $1.2 billion. Uh, this is the next one, number seven. NATO signs $1.2 billion contract for 155-millimeter artillery ammunition. They bought over a billion dollars. They ordered a billion dollars of ammo today, Doc. That, that's no sign that things are slowing down. That, that means they're ramping up. NATO signed a 1.1 billion euro, 1.2 billion U.S. contract for hundreds of thousands of 155 millimeter artillery rounds on Tuesday, some of which will be supplied to Ukraine after Kiev complained of ammo shortages. 
Uh, Ian Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, said the war in Ukraine has become a battle of ammunition. And I, I, Doc, if this continues on the path that we're on right now, I don't believe you and I, those of us who are in this audience, I don't believe we will be able to buy ammo by the end of this year. I think that I think the nations of the world will just suck up all the gunpowder on the planet. Ammo, I don't know if you've purchased any lately, but ammo prices are way up. That's what I mean. But it will go beyond that, Doc. Oh, yes. It will get to the point that the ammo manufacturers simply will not be able to sell any to the general public. They won't. They'll be under military. The, the, what is the, 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 the defense? Uh, what's the Defense Act from the Korean War? President the, Trump? the Defense Authorization Act? No. Is that what it is? It's the one um, President Trump used in COVID. Yes. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yes. Where they, they order the factories? to In that case, to make ventilators back under yes. the Trump So they Trump just, you get the Department of Defense, sends a letter to a factory and says, uh, you stop making widgets. The Pentagon needs these gadgets. And right now, your factory is ordered by the President of the United States to produce them. All right, I'll take it a step further. I believe that at some point in the near future, they will confiscate ammunition. I believe that too, Doc. That's where we're headed. Confiscate it from the retailers first, mm-hmm. and then from individuals. That's where we're headed. There, and I don't say it can't happen. <laughs> there is a global ammo shortage, and the reason that there's an ammo shortage is there's a big storm churning in the sea, and it's going to go to Cat Five, and they all know it. They know it's going to go to Cat Five, and they're preparing for the storm. They know the storm's already moving, but they know it's going to get ramped up to a Cat 5 storm, the war, the world war. And so we're going into it. I'm telling you, the the elite know it, and we're headed for it. Remember, the elite don't care about you. They see life completely different than the way you and I see it, and they don't care about you and me. In fact, they would like you and me to disappear. They would like us to disappear. And if a war takes out a couple billion of us, they're happy about it. They would be completely happy. More for them. Yes, it's more for them. Uh, I've got a few video clips from the NATO press conference. Here's uh, Secretary General uh, Jens Stoltenberg. We have just uh, concluded contracts worth 1.2 billion U.S. dollars to buy hundreds of thousands of rounds of uh, 155 millimeter artillery ammunition. This demonstrates that NATO's uh, tried and tested structure uh, for joint procurement uh, is delivering. Russia's uh, war in Ukraine has become a battle for ammunition. So it is important that allies refill their own stocks as we continue to support Ukraine. The NATO Support and Procurement Agency enables allies to pull together and pool their resources to give them the weapons and ammunition we need to keep our countries safe. Since we agreed NATO's Defense Production Action Plan last uh, last July, 
the NSBA has agreed contracts worth around 10 billion US dollars. This includes around 4 billion dollars for howitzer shells, tank ammunition, anti-tank guided missiles and 155 millimeter ammunition. Together with uh, 5.5 billion dollars for Patriot interceptor missiles. This is a significant boost for our transatlantic defense industry, helping us to meet our own security needs while continuing to provide vital support for Ukraine. And if I'm Russia and I'm hearing Ian Stoltenberg today, I'm hearing a, a, an alliance of countries is supplying ammunition to my enemy. Mm -hmm. To kill your soldiers. Right. So who's my real enemy? It's not Ukraine. It's, it's NATO. NATO. Precisely. And Russia has said this consistently. We know that we're fighting NATO. We're fighting the entire West. And Russia's, Russia's pre prepping for that all-out war. I'm going to go to number 10, the uh, Telegraph. Germany considers recruiting foreigner, foreigners to uh, serve in the uh, army uh, in the face of Russian menace. So the Germans are are taking seriously that they are going to war on the European continent with Russia. And so desperate that they will allow foreigners They're to opening join. the doors of the German army to foreigners. So that makes them mercenaries, all right? Um, really a foreign legion. Right, like a German it's a foreign, foreign legion. legion. You're right. Now, we've got a number of, uh, of cuts from a video. This comes from Davos. And last week on, on January 16, the Victor Pinchuk Foundation hosted a panel discussion at the World Economic Forum. What if Ukraine loses? And Doc went through this video for me today and pulled out some of the key um, parts of this uh, presentation. I, I think the whole thing was, what, an hour? An hour yes. About an hour long. So we want to show you because what you're going to see is the, the, here are the global elite in Davos saying we can't let Ukraine lose. The West will implode. We have to fight to the end. So the first one, um, we have uh, uh, Neil Ferguson saying the, the West cannot afford to let Russia win in Ukraine. Let's watch. It would be victory for Putin if Ukraine retained even uh, a majority of its 1991 territory, but was economically unable to survive or to prosper. It might survive, but it would be unstable. And if it were unstable, the Ukrainians who have left since uh, 2022 might never come back. The country might be condemned to insecurity, uh, to poverty. Investment wouldn't come. That would be enough to constitute victory without... Putin needing to march uh, through Kyiv at the head of a victory parade. Why would that, that outcome be bad? Well, in some ways, it's obvious, and it shouldn't have to be spelt out. And it sort of annoyed me to have to spell it out in black and white. But it would clearly signal a failure of the Western alliance that was formed hastily in 2022, a failure of American leadership, it would expose as meaningless phrases such as, we will be there for as long as it takes. 
it would dent not only the credibility of an American-led alliance, but more importantly, I think, it would create a much higher level of insecurity for the rest of Europe, including the European members of NATO, new and old, who would then have to consider the question of what strategic autonomy really meant in practice. Bear in mind that if the United States isn't there for Ukraine, could it really be counted on to be there in a further crisis, a crisis perhaps affecting Moldova or Lithuania? Strategic autonomy, as I pointed out in the article, is an expensive thing. To talk of 2% of GDP as a defense budget, historically, is to talk of a very small amount. These are low numbers. During the Cold War, some European countries had defense budgets in excess of 5% of GDP. And I calculated at the end of the piece how much it would cost France, how much it would cost Germany, how much it would cost the different uh, European members of NATO to achieve strategic autonomy for the eventuality of a new Cold War, because I think that would be what we would be in. It's clear that there would be a major threat to other countries if Ukraine were defeated, because Putin's entire method, his entire approach to the war would be vindicated. And this would not just be a vindication for Russian imperialism, I think it would also be implicitly a vindication uh, for those powers that have tacitly or openly supported Russia. And I include in that China. Because make no mistake, without Chinese economic support, the Russian war machine would not be able to grind on as it is grinding on. So this is a huge geopolitical moment. It has significance not just for Ukraine. It has significance for the whole world. And that is why I cannot emphasize this enough. We cannot afford to allow Ukraine to lose this war. We cannot afford to allow Putin to claim victory because the costs to us, not just the financial and economic costs, but the moral costs to us would be unacceptably high. So, Doc, uh, Mr. Ferguson, as you know, he was a, he's a, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. So, once again, it's the boys and girls from the Ivy League universities who are making a mess of the world. Deep State University. Deep State U. You got it. They, everything they touch becomes a disaster. Every policy they have pursued since World War II has ended in disaster, has not helped the country. And yet we, we sit back and we allow these people to continue running things. Yes. Remember, they're the ones that got us into this mess with Russia in the first place. Precisely. And you'll hear them in this entire uh, presentation, Russia's losing, Russia's losing, Russia's losing. Uh, it doesn't look like they're losing. It looks like they're still active because the West bet that Russia would have already given in by now. That, oh, they didn't expect this to go on for two years. No, they did not. They thought the sanctions, the military aid to Ukraine, this would this would break the back of Russia a long time ago. It didn't. It made Russia stronger enough. But Talk he did this. speak the truth there in that they they can't allow Ukraine to lose this because – not not and he said it there at the end not just financially it, there is a really a pride factor involved because if the west and nato lose ukraine they've lost the moral high ground to tell the rest of the world what to do 
And that's that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes. So the next speaker is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Um, and uh, the message here is if Ukraine loses, the world order loses. That's right. And who's the speaker? This is a Ukrainian member of parliament, uh, uh, Lucia Vasilenko. Now, if we go deeper into the notion, what if Ukraine loses, just to understand what it means, this will also give you the answer as to why the the allies of Ukraine stay with Ukraine today. Uh, They know well enough that for Ukraine to lose means that other countries become buffer zones. And these other countries are all of the countries that are bordering Ukraine today. Uh, do we want and is Europe and the rest of the world who has already invested in countries like Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova, Georgia, just to name a few, can they really imagine their investment going to waste, these countries becoming the new buffer zone, much, much larger than Ukraine? No, they cannot. This is why investing in Ukraine's victory and investing in Ukraine's success and in the non-repetition of Russia's aggression is key and remains a key focus today and will remain a key focus regardless of uh, which, uh, which political force wins in the upcoming elections this year. And there will be over 70 elections across the world this year. Uh, something else for us to understand, it's um, not just about the security order or the economic order. It's definitely, like we have discussed on many platforms, it's also about the um, the legal but moral aspect of it. The international community as it stands today, the international community which wants to develop, which wants to to, uh, see a future world for uh, the future generations to grow up in, which is based on on human rights, on on freedoms, on uh, the possibility to to grow, including economically, uh, that world cannot uh, bear to uh, have blood on its hands. That world cannot, uh, cannot survive, cannot strive, cannot develop if, uh, there is, uh, th- if the crimes of genocide are allowed, if the crimes of uh, human rights uh, are allowed and the crimes of uh, and war crimes are allowed. That will just, these communities will just not stand. Uh, it's as simple as that and it's a tried in many international legal documents uh, and it's up to the international community to find strengths in themselves to uh, prevent these crimes and this is exactly what is happening now and I think that we have this collective understanding and the next step of going further is again I, I will underscore this many times uh, to make sure that there is uh, a prevention of further aggression from Russia's federation and, and that Russia is uh, unable to pursue its aggressive causes and unable to restart aggressive wars. But for that, we need to have a different question up there. And we need to have what if Russia loses, but really, really loses. And in this next segment, she says the world has got to give Ukraine permission to bomb Russia. Yes. Russian territory, Russian cities. Right. Let's watch. This is a, I'm sorry, I like that about the insurance premium. 17. Uh, But before we go into that, uh, it's not just about getting the weapons on the ground. It's also about having the permission to use these weapons 
properly against Russia, specifically to hit the targets from which the most attacks are being conducted onto Ukraine. And for that, we need a collective okay from the West, from the international community, who has gone a long way, by the way, in understanding what is happening on the ground in Ukraine and the consequences of it on a global scale. I think this answers, Carl, your question about, uh, or your surprise as to the, the fact that the Ukraine fatigue hasn't settled in, and I'm so glad to see those numbers, by the way. But the reason for that is because this war has been going on for 10 years. It will be 10 years in February this year uh, since the first attack. So the West has learned its lesson, as well as Ukraine has, that fatigue does not give you an outcome, and that, in fact, it leads to an escalation of war, and it leads to extra spending, it leads to extra risks, and all of those things we have discussed already. So I think that what we have to command uh, ourselves and our partners with is that actually we have started learning lessons from the past. Now let's go a step further and the step further would be going back to Valery's comments uh, and he has excellently, Valery by the way, set out the uh, if what if uh, in Russia there is a decolonization, there is a demilitarization, deputinization, and all of these things, but it shouldn't be an if, it should be a when. And again, this depends on the collective okay from the West going as far as not just discussing, and we're at that stage of discussing at the moment only, but actually having actions for the ifs regarding Russia's loss to become the whens. And then the question will be, uh, what if the West allows Russia to lose? So, Doc, while the elites were gathered at, at World Economic Forum talking like there's no way we can allow Ukraine to lose. And that, absolutely, they cannot, that was the message they cannot that, allow Ukraine to lose at all. But in, in the Czech Republic, a former... A former diplomat told a uh, Czech magazine that the moment of truth will come. Ukraine will not survive. We have already seen this. Now, I, there's a lot in this interview. We don't have time to dig down deep into it. Uh, the, the next article is uh, Novasti, and they did a summary of the article. Uh, they'll be announced soon, is the headline. It became known what the West had prepared for Ukraine. According to this, this interview, this uh, former Czech top diplomat, Peter Drulak, said, he just said the opposite of what they said at the World Economic Forum. Right. There's no way Ukraine can win. And the West knows it. And they're getting ready to divide up Ukraine, which sounds like he's been watching us. Yes. So it says Kiev's Western allies will soon openly talk about dividing Ukraine to end hostilities in the country, says former Czech top diplomat Peter Drulak. Quote, the main scenario based on the real state of affairs provides that Kiev will not control all the territories that are part of the internationally recognized borders of Ukraine. Those who insist on this and consider it to be the main condition of peace are under illusion. Those who understand that Ukraine will be divided and shrunk look at things soberly. 
According to him, Ukraine, which has lost Western support, will continue to crumble during the conflict with Russia if her allies don't force her to make concessions. Quote, the moment of truth will come. I don't know when it will happen in a couple of months this year or in a year, but it is clear that it will be so and that Ukraine will not survive. Then the moment of truth will come in the same way at a certain point the West abandoned Afghanistan and before that Iraq. Now something similar awaits Ukraine. And he has a very valid point. Yes. The West fought in Afghanistan for 20 years and then just walked away. Yes. We, we, we leveled Iraq and look at the, the state of Iraq now. Look what we did to Libya. Every country, we go in, we bomb them, we, we destroy their infrastructure, and, and hand, we just walk away. And hand rebuilding contracts to friends and family members. So what this diplomat is saying is anybody who is sober knows that Ukraine will not exist in a year or two in the same shape and size that it is now. Right. Which confirms what you and I have been saying. For, for nearly a year now. Russia will get East Ukraine, Poland will get West Ukraine, and Zelensky will get downtown Kiev. That's it. And somebody else will get the farms. I mean, the whole country is going to be divided up. There will be a peace settlement. It won't be very peaceful, but it'll be a settlement. The war is over. But it just means— Oh, no, no. The war won't be over. No, I know. Even in that seminar that we just looked at, they said— even if Ukraine temporarily loses, temporarily loses, it's not a loss. I thought that's a weird statement to make. Mm-hmm. They're expecting a loss. Yes, but the war. Continues. But the big war is with NATO and go. Russia. There you go. That's the big war. Yes. Um, I'm down to one minute. I don't know what I've got here. We're going to switch over to uh, Palestinian Gaza news. Or, uh, with Israel. I will take a look really quick and we'll pick it up at the top of the second hour. Uh, This is number 22, Times of Israel. Top EU diplomat says Israel has no right to block creation of a Palestinian state. That's our old buddy Joseph Burrell. And now he's talking sense. He's usually talking crazy but now he's he's talking sense doc he's he's saying israel has israel's in no no shape to tell the world that there's not going to be a palestinian state something's changed and what's changed is the world is now shocked at the behavior of the zionists and can no longer allow them to get away with what they're doing hey we got to take a break for station identification we'll be back in 30 seconds you're watching true news i've got more news coming up the top of the second hour. You're listening to WWCR International Shortwave Radio. You can find True News on frequency 12.160 from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern and on frequency 4.840 from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern. Connect with us on Rumble, Facebook, X, and Getter. Okay, welcome back. So the top foreign policy diplomat of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, 
today told Israel, you don't have any say in this. Say in what? Whether there's a Palestinian state. Doc, he says in this article that the world is going to force Israel to accept a Palestinian state. Well, the world created Israel the same way. And the the steps that were taken by the new UN in 1948 authorized the establishment of a Palestinian state. Yes. So legally, they're simply going to go back and say it's already been decided. It was decided in 1948 there would be a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. And the Jewish state got half of Jerusalem, and the Palestinian state got the other half. And if I recall, Jerusalem became kind of a self-governing yes. entity like Vatican City. Right. Kind of an enclave. And the borders were much smaller because at that time, Jordan controlled the West Bank right. and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Let's look at what he's saying. One thing is clear. Israel cannot have the veto right to the self-determination of the Palestinian people. The United Nations recognizes and has recognized many times the self-determination right of the Palestinian people. Nobody can veto it. Burrell has floated a roadmap involving an international conference on a two-state solution and has previously said peace needs to be imposed on Israel without the country's agreement. You're talking big, Mr. Burrell. I just don't see it happening. I mean, they've been talking about a two-state solution, Rick, my entire life. Sort of like the southern border here in the U.S. Remember the Oslo Accords? Yes. I mean... Remember the Camp David Accords? How many Accords have there been? And throughout it, guys like Netanyahu have lied and said, sure, we're working towards the day we can have a settlement. And they were lying. They were stalling, delaying, running the clock. And people know it. So in a speech in Spain, Borrell said that without international intervention, the spiral of hate will continue generation after generation. He said, quote, the actors are too opposed to be able to reach an agreement autonomously. If everyone is in favor of this solution, the international community will have to impose it. This is going to be interesting to see how this is done, Doc. I'd like to see you impose it, if you really believe it. You haven't imposed it yet. Well, Doc, um, if if the West pulled out of Ukraine, what would happen to Ukraine? It'd collapse. If the United States stopped sending money to Israel, what would happen? They would definitely collapse. All right. So do we have anybody running for president in 2024 who would pull out financial and military support for Israel? No. Nobody. So Mr. Burrell can have a great plan, but the U.S. is joined at the hip with Israel. Yes. And so you've got to you have to get a change in the U.S., Leadership before you can get a settlement in the Middle East because the U.S. backs Israel. Anything they want, including letting them carry out genocide. Yes. It doesn't stop them at all.
Telegraph reporting Israel proposes stock. This was a big surprise to me today. Israel proposes a two month pause in the fighting in Gaza in exchange for all Hamas hostages. Now, Rick, it wasn't too long ago that the Sean Hannity's and the Glenn Beck's and the Dan Bongino's and all the talking heads out there said a ceasefire would mean a victory for Hamas. Yes. So are we seeing a victory for Hamas here? Well, what's happening politically in Israel is that the the families of the hostages are becoming irate, frustrated, storming, angry, storming into the Knesset. Yes. Camping around Netanyahu's house, they're tired of waiting. So the pressure is on the Israeli leadership, get all of the hostages who are still alive, get them released. And if that requires a two-month pause, a two-month ceasefire, because that's what it is. It's a two-month ceasefire for the sake of the children of Gaza. Please do it. Now, once all the hostages are out, there's nothing holding Netanyahu back at that point. There, there won't be a bug left alive yes. after that point. Because the only thing that's held him back, I mean, in, with all of the outrageous bombing that he's done, he's not completely leveled Gaza because they're trying to keep some of the hostages alive. But if he gets them all out, then he's going to go completely bonkers. And no unless, unless the world community tells him, you, you can't, you're not going to do this again. We're not going to let you do it anymore. This is it. I don't know, Doc. I, I pray that it happens. I don't want to see one more child die. I, I've got a couple minutes here. I want to show you. I'm just going to show you some videos. Uh, here's a Palestinian girl shot by IDF soldiers. Look at her. She's... Uh, She's shot in the leg by Israeli soldiers, and she's saying, uh, according to the Arabic translation, uh, I hope I can walk again someday. Uh, there you see her leg, uh, a bullet hole in the leg. Uh, here's another one. This uh, children at a, at a Gaza hospital. While the hospital's under attack. Yes. being treated. The Israelis are attacking the hospital as the doctors and nurses are trying to keep children alive. And some additional video here, you're going to see uh, uh, rescuers trying to get children that are under rubble here. I just look at this. How? Trapped. Oh. Still uh, alive. But what, what, how, how are they alive? I, I don't get it. Look at this. I don't know how anybody supports Israel. I just don't know how anybody supports them. I, I just don't know. It's. It's beyond my comprehension. I've never seen anything so evil and wicked in my life. Elon Musk uh, is on his apology tour, uh, according to uh, uh, London Times. He arrived uh, at the Auschwitz concentration camp along with uh, Ben Shapiro. And uh, there he is getting out of his car, um, again accompanied by Ben Shapiro, He's, uh, he's being forced to uh, bow down and appease the, the Zionists. Let me tell you something. Had to participate in a service there. The, the issue is not whether there was a Holocaust in 1940s. That's not the issue. 
We're not discussing it. It's not up for debate right now. What's happening right now in 2024 is genocide in Gaza. Yes. Not Holocaust in Germany 70-some years ago. It's a genocide in Gaza today. But the Zionists want to divert everybody's attention and say, let's go back 70 years and look. No, I want to look at what you are doing right now today. You're killing babies. And every righteous person in the world must oppose it. i got to go. We'll be back with Morning Manna. Are you concerned about this economic storm and how your IRA and 401k will fare during these turbulent times? Top experts are predicting now is the time to be protecting your assets with physical gold and silver. Find out why Genesis Gold Group is the number one recommended company by your favorite preppers and homestead channels. Receive Genesis Gold Group's free definitive gold guide today or give them a call at 800-200-GOLD. Let's okay. pray, gracious, gracious Heavenly Father. Father, we love you and we praise you. We come to you with faith and thanksgiving and praise and glory for your name. We come in the name of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for life, for eternal life, Father, and for all the good things that you do for us as our Father. We invite your Holy Spirit to lead us in this morning manna Bible study Teach us your word, illuminate our hearts and minds to see Jesus in all of his majesty and glory. In his name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So reading from uh, Matthew chapter 2, and I'm reading from the King James, beginning at verse 14. When he, being Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrought, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But uh, when, oh, sorry, that was verse 18 there. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So uh, verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Yesterday I talked about how the Egyptian Coptic church believes that there are Old Testament prophecies about Jesus in Egypt, and that the Egyptian church is the fulfillment of those prophecies that Christ established his church in Egypt. So we have today um, a, a, the mention of an Old Testament prophecy 
Hosea 11, verse 1. Here comes the Breitbart train. So I don't know. If, I guess you can hear that, Doc. Can't help but hear. Train go by. <laughs> so that's our that's our new eighty mile an hour train. In case everybody's wondering uh, online. Yes. Yeah, you don't want to get in front of that train. So, the Holy Family stay in Egypt is seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Hosea eleven one. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. That's the Old Testament prophecy, Hosea 11.1. Matthew quoted it, but changed the, the wording, said Joseph and Mary and Jesus remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what the Lord has spoken through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. So all serious Bible teachers and students know that Israel in Hosea 1 is the Israel of God. Yes. Take note that Israel is not land. God did not take land out of Egypt and plop it down in Palestine and declare it to be Israel. Israel was and is and shall always be the people of God. The people who love God, have faith in God, obey God. Israel is not a land. It's a people. And just because several million European and American Jews migrated to Palestine, illegally occupied the land, and called their illegal country Israel, does not make them the Israel of God. Amen. The people in Palestine today who call themselves Israelis do not love God, nor do they have faith in God, nor do they obey God. If they, ha if they love God, if they had faith in him, if they obeyed him, they would repent of their sins, confess the name of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and be baptized into his holy church, and be eagerly anticipating his second coming. Then and only then could they call themselves citizens of Israel. Amen. I hope that clears it up for people. Because there's so much misunderstanding in the American churches today about Israel. I believe Satan planted a counterfeit Israel in Palestine in 1948. Yes. Completely confused the world. Now, notice in Hosea, the Old Testament prophet Hosea, God called Israel my son. Yes. He said when Israel was a child, meaning when the Hebrew people were young in terms of their relationship with God as his people, not age-wise, but in, their, in the time that they had a relationship with God, they were young. 
God loved them. He, he loved him, meaning his son Israel, and called him out of Egypt. In Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, said God re referred to Israel as his son, not as a people, his son. The, the childhood of Israel represents the, the age of the patriarchs and the time spent in Egyptian bondage. He loved him means God showed paternal kindness and care to the Hebrews. He blessed them with increased numbers and wealth and honor. Clearly, the verse refers to the history of Israel as the people of God, a special class of people among all the nations of the world chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. That was their purpose, bring forth the Messiah. Yet St. Matthew, go ahead, Doc. I was going to say, and even Hosea is uh, sort of quoting uh, Exodus chapter, uh, let's see, what is it? Exodus 4.22. When Moses is before Pharaoh, Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. And so there was also that context, even when Moses was speaking to Pharaoh, that Israel was not a, a piece of real estate, but a people of God. Doc, you and I are tracking on identical paths because that's the very next thing I was going to quote that's exactly where i was headed exodus 4 because that is the progression in realizing understanding the interpretation of matthew yes so saint matthew applied hosea 11 1 to jesus christ the only begotten son of god Therefore, it is in black and white for all to read. God calls his son Jesus to be Israel. That's it. Right there. You got it. You cannot be in Israel unless you are in Christ. That's it. Doc, this seals it. This is it. It's, there's nothing else to discuss. Right. And God and calls Israel his son. And God only has one son. And only begotten son. That's right. So in, in the exodus of the Hebrew people from Egyptian bondage, God acted as their heavenly father. He fed them. He led them. He protected them. He defended them. Hosea said, he called my son out of Egypt. Matthew turned it around and said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Yet he's quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. Matthew applies the prophecy to Jesus, emphasizing the parallel between the history of Israel and the life of Jesus as God's only begotten son. Just as God called Israel his chosen son out of Egypt during the Exodus, 
he also led Jesus, his only begotten son, out of Egypt after their exile there. Yes. You know, Rick, for a lot of people, and I didn't even understand the scripture until uh, sometime middle of last year. I'd never seen that before, this particular passage, and never made, you know, because, you, you know, sometimes you read things so many times, you think you, you know what it means. And then you start digging in, and you suddenly find out, wait a minute, according to what Matthew is saying here, Jesus is Israel. Jesus yes. is Israel. And this is and Israel the, is his son. That's right. And this is one of the easiest proof texts that refutes the idea that Israel is a modern political state. Rather, Israel is Christ, and if you're in Christ, you are in Israel. Yes. The Israel of God. God didn't refer to Israel as a land. He didn't even refer to Israel as a people. He referred to Israel as his son. Yes. How more plain does he have to make it? So Doc, Doc mentioned Exodus 4. Let's, I'm going to read it again, starting at verse 21 through 23. Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. You shall tell Pharaoh... Yahweh says, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I have said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So God instructed Moses to tell Egypt's Pharaoh, Jehovah, Yahweh says, Israel is my son. He's my firstborn. We see irrefutable evidence that Almighty God referred to his only begotten son as Israel. Israel and Jesus are one and the same. That's right. You got it, Rick. And, and, and Doc, if, if, if you can take that away for everybody that's home, we have more than 300 people on right now. If you get nothing else from this lesson day, get that. Get that context. Israel. Israel and Jesus are one and the same. To be theologically theologically correct, I'm going to correct myself. I should not say Israel and the church are one. The correct statement is Israel and Jesus are one. And we are in Jesus. Yes. So when you are in Christ, you are in Israel. You are not. Let me. I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase that. When you are in Christ, you are Israel. Yes. Israel is not your place of being. It is your being. Yes, it's who you are. It's who you are. It's your identity. You are Israel. Why? Because you are in Christ, and Christ is Israel. Now, and even... Oh, I, I absolutely, I detest Christian Zionism. I think that's obvious. Me too. It is heresy. It's blasphemy against the Lord. 
because it's telling Christians that they are not Israel. Yep. They're telling Christians that Israel is not Jesus. That Israel is a piece of land in Palestine occupied by people who hate Jesus Christ. That's what makes me so mad about Christian Zionism. I mean, I, the Zionists don't go that far. Yeah. The Jewish Zionists don't go that far. They, they, they blaspheme the Lord by saying the state of Israel is the Messiah. Yes. Isn't that interesting, Doc? I just thought about that. Theodore Herzl taught the Jews the state of Israel shall be our Messiah. And yes. yet well, that's what an atheist would say. Yet scripture says the Messiah is Israel. They turn the state into the Messiah. Yes. That's they denied Jesus time. Christ. Yeah. Yes. Because, because actually, <laughs> Theodore Herzl, he was right if he would have said, Israel is our Messiah. Yes. Because Israel is Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus. So he turned the state of Israel into the Messiah to replace Jesus. And all these Christian Zionists like John Hagee are blaspheming by telling people that the state of Israel is of God. And it directly contradicts the word of God. Yes. So Exodus 4 tells us that God told Moses to notify Pharaoh that Israel is his son. A firstborn son. Yes, firstborn son. And that Pharaoh must release God's firstborn son from bondage. Israel, God's people, but in a fuller sense, God's son, were enslaved in Egypt. Biblically, Egypt symbolizes slavery, bondage, and sin. Right. God delivered Israel from bondage and slavery and sin. He led them to the promised land, a land flowing with abundance. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, we are delivered from bondage to sin and brought into the promised land a land flowing with eternal goodness. And Rick, we're brought in by adoption. We're brought in by adoption. Uh, we're not the firstborn, but we're brought in by adoption. And Paul alluded to this uh, in Romans chapter 8. He said, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul is alluding right to this. In this God. passage in uh, Exodus 4. 
there is uh, there's also similarity between Egypt's Pharaoh and Israel's Herod the Great. In judgment, God took the life of Egypt's firstborn sons, including the son of Pharaoh. Herod ordered the slaughter of all boys in and near Bethlehem, two years old and younger. According to historians, Herod also ordered that his own son be executed too. In fact, during his reign as king, Herod killed another two of his sons. And Macrobius, a Roman writer, wrote that Roman Emperor Augustus remarked about the execution of Herod's son, quote, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Yeah, oh, yeah, I've heard that expression. I didn't know it related to this, though. Yes. Think about that. The Roman emperor, when he heard of what Herod did, said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Hmm. And, and he made that statement in a reference of how Herod would not, because Herod was a Jew, he would not kill pigs. But he freely murdered his sons. <laughs> That's why the emperor said, hey, you'd be better off to be a pig. So we see in Exodus that God commanded Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Israel is identified as God's firstborn son. The Israel in Exodus is a figure of the Messiah in whom God fulfilled all his promises. And although the son in Exodus is natural Israel, the people of God, they were called out of Egypt. All right, so it's evident that the Holy Spirit intended for us to see that the call to Joseph to lead his adopted son, Jesus, out of Egypt is a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, which is when Israel was a child. Then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. When God looked upon the Hebrew people trapped in Egyptian bondage, he loved them, and he saw the day that he would lead them out of Egypt. When he looked upon the Hebrews, Jehovah saw the future church of Christ. The rule is this, first the natural, then the spiritual. Right. So, Doc, way back in the days of Moses, when God was looking at the Hebrews in bondage, he was looking at you and me in bondage of sin thousands of years later. God was foreseeing the day that he would lead us out of bondage out of slavery, into freedom. He saw the church. He had planned the church before the foundation of the world. There's also a great... And if you'll receive it, the church was in the wilderness. Yes. In fact, Stephen said exactly that in his address to uh, the, the uh, Sanhedrin before they stoned him. He said... Uh, Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, and this is that church in the wilderness. 
that assembly in the wilderness. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Man, this is good, Rick. <laughs> it's getting gooder as we go. Um, there's, there's also a great similarity between Moses' exodus and Jesus' Passover. I, I could spend an entire hour on this topic. Uh, I, I'm just going to condense it. Moses' exodus had three main objectives. Lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage. That was number one. Number two, lead Israel to the promised land where God would bless their daily lives. And three, lead Israel to a place where they would be free to worship God. Jesus did the same thing for us. He led us out of the bondage of sin. He brought us into a promised land in this life. And he gave us the freedom to worship God. There are also some other spiritual parallels between the Exodus and Jesus's Passover. Redemption and deliverance. As I just mentioned, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, symbolizing their redemption and deliverance from bondage. Jesus's Passover is a symbol of redemption and deliverance from the bondage of sin. A blood sacrifice. In Exodus, the Israelites were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and mark their doorposts with its blood to protect them from the angel that would pass over and kill the Egyptians. Jesus's crucifixion is the ultimate sacrifice with his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And he's the Through door faith, as well. <laughs> he is the door. He is the door. Liberation. Moses led the Israelites to the promised land. Jesus is the way to eternal life. Covenants. God established a covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai gave them the Ten Commandments and the laws. Jesus went up on the mount and gave us new commandments. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He is the mediator of a new covenant between God and humanity. And this new covenant is centered on love, grace, and faith in Jesus as our Savior. A Passover lamb. In Exodus, the lamb was a symbol of sacrifice and protection. Jesus is the lamb of God who atones for the sins of humanity and freedom from bondage. Both stories emphasize liberation and freedom from bondage, whether it be physical slavery in Exodus or spiritual bondage in Jesus' Passover. And I mentioned protection from death. Moses told the Hebrews, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So look, let's look at Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star from the sky which had fallen to the earth. 
The key to the pit of the abyss was given to him. He opened the pit. He, he opened the pit of the abyss and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke from a burning furnace. The sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke from pit. pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts on the earth and power was given to them as the scorpions of earth have power. They were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only those who don't have God's seal on their foreheads. They were given power not to kill, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a person. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, but death will flee from them. The shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for war. On their heads were something like golden crowns, and their faces were like people's faces. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like those of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to war. They have tails like the scorpions and stings, and in their tail they have the power to harm men for five months. They have over them the king, as king, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, there are two more woes. The second angel sounded. I heard a voice from the horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, free the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. And so it goes on to talk about, in verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for that day, an hour, and month, that they might kill one-third of mankind. But there were people who were protected. The locust did not torment everybody. Yes. The four angels did not kill everybody. There are people who will be marked. They will be marked with the blood of Christ. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so we get to verse uh, 16. Then Herod when he saw that he was mocked by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent out and killed all the male children who were in Bethlehem and the surrounding countryside from two years old and under, according to the exact time which he had learned from the wise men. So this is fairly simple to see what happened when, when the wise men did not return to Herod, as he told them to do so, and he was surely informed the king, the wise men, have they have booked out of town. They went a different route. We missed them. We didn't see them leave. He became furious, exceedingly angry, ordered that every child two years old, every boy two years old and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. The King James says the coast, it doesn't mean the ocean coast, it means the boundaries of Bethlehem. Right. So he slaughtered all of them. Um, Doc, I was always taught that Herod killed the boys because he feared that this child was going to be a rival for his throne. But I, 
I came to realize something. He knew it was the Messiah. He didn't see him as a political rival. He didn't think, hey, this, this kid's going to grow up and challenge me to be the king of Israel. This horrifying act of killing all the boys was, was more than his paranoia and fear that this newborn child would be a potential rival to his throne. Herod knew the child was the promised Messiah. How do we know? Because he asked Jerusalem's Jews, tell me where the Messiah would be yes. born. He didn't ask about the king. That goes back to that. He they knew all knew. They all knew this boy was the Messiah. All of them. They all knew. I'm going to get back to Matthew 2 verses 4 and 6. And when he, this meaning Herod, gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ should be born. Where Christ should be born. Not the king. Not the king of the Jews. Not a, revolution, not a revolutionary. Not a Spartacus. Not a, not a, 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 a Rambo. Where Christ, the anointed one, where will Christ be born? And they all said in one accord in Bethlehem, Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no longer least among the princes of Judah. For out of you shall come a governor who shall shepherd my people Israel. When Herod asked where Christ should be born, he didn't say, where, where will this little whippersnapper be born that's going to try to take over my throne? He said, where will Christ be born? Christ means anointed one. He, he feared that the Messiah had arrived. Let me, let me rephrase this. Herod didn't fear a, a political rival who would challenge his throne of, over Judea. Herod feared that the Messiah had arrived from heaven who would challenge the entire system of human civilization. Doc, the spirit of Nimrod came upon Herod. And the spirit of Pharaoh. And the spirit of Pharaoh. Nimrod hated the God who wiped out humans, human civilization with a global flood. He plotted to build a tower to heaven whereby he could overthrow God. So instantly... Herod became Nimrod. And if, let me tell you something. If you told Benjamin Netanyahu today that the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, had been born in that little Palestinian town of Bethlehem, six miles from Jerusalem, Netanyahu would attempt to kill the Christ child today. He would flatten Bethlehem. He would, he would bomb it. There wouldn't be a building standing. The world's political system belongs to Satan. And most of its leaders are not desiring the Messiah. Hmm. 
why he would end their rule. I'm looking at my time. Okay, verses 17, 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. In Ramah, a voice was heard, grieving and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be comforted because they are no more. When writing about Herod's slaughter of Bethlehem's boys, St. Matthew quoted Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. Jeremiah, in his day, referred to the mourning of the Jewish mothers who had been taken captive. Well, not he was referring to the, the, the Jews who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Right. And Ramah was a town. Was it Ramah or Ramah? Either you know way. that? Either, Either way. way. Okay. I'll, okay. I'll say Rama. You say Rama. Okay. So Rama was a town near Bethlehem. Isn't it interesting? It's near Bethlehem. It was in the tribe of Benjamin. And the town Rama was associated with Rachel, the wife of Jacob. She's buried there. So the prophecy in Jeremiah mentions a voice of lamentation and weeping. Rachel, the, the wife of Jacob, weeping for the children because they were no more. Matthew applies this prophecy to the tragic slaughter of boys in Bethlehem. In this context, Rachel is symbolically portrayed as a mother figure weeping for the children of Bethlehem. And can I tell you something, my friends? Today, Rachel is weeping for the children of Gaza. Yes. Yes. In this context, Rachel is symbolically representing the sorrowful mothers of Bethlehem and the region. These mothers are depicted as weeping for their children, refusing to be comforted because their children were no longer alive. Now, I see something else. I see something more in Jeremiah 31. Yes, the lamentation of Rachel refers to the death of innocent children and was prophetically connected to the slaughter of Bethlehem's children in the days of Jesus Christ. However, I want you to look at the next two verses in Jeremiah. Because after Jeremiah says, Rachel is weeping. She cannot be comforted. Her children are no more. Verse 16 says, Yahweh says, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, says Yahweh. They will come again from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your latter end, says Yahweh. Your children will come again to their own territory. I see the resurrection. I see the resurrection in that prophecy. That's good. God is saying, 
he's saying to the to Rachel, Rachel, stop your crying. I know, I know you're you're missing your children. You're weeping. You're crying, but there's hope for your latter end. Your children will come again, and the train is coming again. Well, this thought is coming in like a train, Rick. <laughs> I hadn't seen that before. I didn't follow up on the uh, following scriptures there in Jeremiah, but it's obvious there. Doc, I'm going to have to wait until this is a long one. That's not the passenger train. (laughs) Okay, I can hear you now. Okay. Well, I was just going to say I had not followed up on those verses in uh, Jeremiah till you just brought them out here. But that's obvious now. When you look at that, you see, and you had to know that when Matthew uh, put this passage in, uh, into his gospel, that they knew what the what that meant. That yes, that yes, uh, Rachel is crying, Rachel is weeping, but that there would be a return for Rachel's children back to their land. Doc, if 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 Rachel was weeping because her children were dead, why would God tell Jeremiah, tell Rachel, stop crying. There's hope for your latter end. That's the later, the latter days. Your children will come again. To me, it's a prophecy of the resurrection. Amen. If you've lost a child, there's hope for your latter end. And there the church bells ringing. And it plain just went over (laughs) too. I didn't time that one. The church bells are ringing. I've got trains and church bells here today. And I just heard a plane go over too. Yeah. I I got one more thing I want to say, and then I'll... We'll pick up tomorrow, verse 19. When, when Herod killed all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding towns, we, we don't know how many children died. I've, I've seen estimates. You know, some Bible scholars said, well, there was probably only 30 boys that age in Bethlehem. Um, but it included all the surrounding towns. Right. Including Rama. Including Rama. Including Rama, where Rachel was crying. So the parents of those boys, let's say that they were in their 20s and 30s. They were the mothers and fathers of the boys who were slain that night. They were in their 20s and 30s. The Christ child grew up, and 30 years later, he's walking through the land as the Messiah. Those parents were were now in their 50s and 60s. How many of those parents who lost their boys during that slaughter by Herod? saw and heard Jesus and realized he's the child. 
He's the child. He's the one Herod wanted to kill. My boy died. Herod was trying to get this one. Hmm. Doc, have um, you ever thought about that? No, and I, I'm trying to recall, there's no time in the Gospels where it says that Jesus ever returned to Bethlehem. Not that I no. recall. But still, no. you've got to know those parents, you're right. I hadn't thought about that before. They certainly heard about him. They they, they, they went to Jerusalem sometimes. They, they traveled. Certainly they heard about a man who was performing miracles, and many people were saying he was the Messiah. Well, how old is he? He's about 30-some years old. Where was he born? In Bethlehem. I just have to think some, just some of those parents connected the dots and said, he is the anointed child. Oh, well, we don't know, do we? No, we don't. We'll know, we'll know when the Lord comes back. So we'll, we'll get to ask them our, to themselves. We'll get to ask these people. Right. All right. Let's wrap it up for today. All right. Well, we appreciate you tuning in today, as usual. Uh, we had 19 countries check in with us today, and uh, about 350, uh, 360 people joining us today, as they do every day, uh, live, 8 a.m., weekday mornings. If you're listening to us on the uh, uh, on the streaming rebroadcast, you can always join us live, weekday mornings at 8 a.m. on Faith and Values. Uh, just look for the Morning Manna podcast, and you can join us live. Um, and so we'd like to invite you to be a part of that if you can, but you also always listen to the replay on faithandvalues.com. Also, uh, if you get the opportunity, you can also listen to the replay of True News here on faithandvalues.com as well. Now, in order for you to listen to the replays, you have to be a member of Faith and Values. And so we've had a whole bunch of new signups here recently. And so uh, obviously the word is getting out about Faith and Values. And so we want to encourage you. If you're listening to us on uh, Rumble, X, Gitter, International Shortwave, and you'd like to listen to the rebroadcast, just simply join faithandvalues.com. You can be with us and listen to all the rebroadcasts that we have available here uh, on the platform. Rick, any uh, final words before we sign off for today? Look, I'm just reading the chat as they go by, and i got to tell you, all of you who every day say thank you, it means a lot to Doc and me. It really does. Yes. Um, I I, am, I deeply appreciate uh, that you all are grateful for what we're doing. Uh, I'd be troubled if you were saying, hey, this is boring. Um, <laughs> so uh, so I, the, the, the comments are very, very encouraging, and I, I appreciate it. It does. It encourages me. We put a lot of work into it. And, uh, you know, I I started this morning at at four thirty on this lesson. And I'm not I'm not complaining. I love it. It's a, it's it's a labor of love, but it is labor. It does. You do work. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, I, I, I can't wait to get to work on morning manna. I can't say the same thing about the news. I have to make myself do the news. 
but I don't have to make myself study the Word of God. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that so many people were blessed by this, this Bible study. Amen. Try to get more people to watch it. All right. Amen. The news has never saved anybody. That's but the right. Word of God is the only way you can be saved. You have to hear the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if there's one takeaway you can get from today's lesson, just one thing. Christ is Israel. You are in Christ. You are in Israel. You are Israel. Yes. So You are Israel. Praise God. All right. Folks. It's, not your, it's not your place of being. It is your identity. It is your being. Praise God. That's good. We are word. one in Christ. And if Christ is Israel and we are one with Christ, therefore we are Israel. Praise and God. And don't let any Christian Zionist tell you you're not Israel. Don't let them take your inheritance, folks. <laughs> and people who bless Israel are blessed and people who curse Israel are cursed. And you are Israel. Amen. So I bless you. I bless you in Jesus' name. Praise God. All right. All right. On, on that note, we'll sign off for today. God bless you. Thanks for joining us here uh, on Morning Man. We'll see you on the Wednesday edition, 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. God bless you. Hey, so what Doc and I were saying, sitting here watching uh, Morning Manna with you, is what the Christian Zionists are doing is committing identity theft. Yes. And Doc said, they arrest people for doing those things. But that's what they're doing. When the, when the Christian Zionists tell Christians that they are not Israel, that non-believers who despise the name of Jesus are Israel, and people who believe in Jesus are not Israel, they are committing identity theft. They yes. are robbing you of your identity in Christ. Right. This isn't about being anti-Jewish. It's not anti-Semitic. It's none of that stuff. It is about believing the Word of God. And it's certainly not replacement theology. It is, we're Israel. You, we are always been saved by faith, faith in believing God's promises from the garden till today. Boy, that's, Doc, what we, what we study today, that blows a giant hole in the entire replacement theology cover-up. Yes. Because there's nothing being replaced. They are the ones who replaced uh, the church replaced the cross, replaced Jesus, replaced faith. They replaced it with Zionism yes. and the Star of David and um, the land of Israel. And what, what Doc and I are doing is we're simply going back and teaching old, traditional Christianity. Yes. It sounds radical. It sounds new. And the reason is it hasn't been preached for a long time. But it's just old sound theology old time religion that's what we're doing giving you that old time religion you are israel we'll see you tomorrow god bless listening to WWCR International Shortwave Radio. You can find True News on frequency 12.160 from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern and on frequency 4.840 from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern. Connect with us on Rumble, Facebook, X, and Getter.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.